Let's go together in prayer before we dive into our passage today. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together as citizens, church, and as saints in a larger universal church. We're thankful for that. Let us not take that for granted each and every day. Lord, we pray for, for this day, September 11th, 2022, where 21 years ago, an event took place that changed not just our country, but it changed the world. Lord, we pray that you would comfort those that dealt with loss or dealt with difficulties and are still grieving 21 years later. Lord, we pray that your comfort would bring them to run to you. And that, Lord, that they they do not would place their faith in Christ. Bring comfort to those people today. Lord, we pray for, for, for the word that is about to be read this morning. Lord, we pray that it would, it would pierce our hearts. We pray, Lord, that it would encourage us. We pray, Lord, it would convict us. We pray, Lord, that it would be glorifying to you. Help me to get out of the way. Help the people here to see you, to see your grace, to see your mercy that you have shown to us. We love you, Lord, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, title of the sermon, The Church is God's. It is His. It shouldn't be a surprise to us. He is sovereign over everything. I was a college student at The Ohio State University. Yes, the is very important if you're not from Columbus. And while I was there, I, was a, I studied physical education. Physical education. I wanted to be a teacher. But ultimately, I wanted to coach, maybe become athletic director someday, something like that. It's funny, while I was there, I think it was some professors that kind of shared with us this quote from Woody Allen, where it says, it says that those who can't do, they teach. And those who can't teach, they teach gym. It's a real confidence booster, especially when you hear it from your professors, right? So it's go out in the world and change things. You're teaching Jeb. But while we weren't kicking soccer balls or dribbling basketballs, we did have some prerequisites that we had to take, just like most colleges, right? You got, you got your sciences, you got your, your English classes or your writing, and you got your, your history. Well, in prerequisites, I tried to find some ideas or some classes that I think that I would enjoy a little bit more than, than others. Um, two things that I was really into at that time in my life was music. Uh, I was kind of an old soul. I really enjoyed music from the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s. And there was a class called the History of Rock and Roll. So, man, great. I'm going to take that. It was a great class. Obviously, the other thing, too, was sports. I was really into sports. And Ohio State offered a class called 21st Century Sports History. Or, sorry, 20th Century, not 21st Century. 20th Century Sports History. It's like, man, this, this is another one that I think I could really enjoy. And maybe I will pass because I enjoyed it. But in that 20th century sports history class, I remember one day, specifically, that we had a classroom discussion. And the discussion was on the greatest moment in American sports history media or broadcasting. What's the greatest, uh, greatest event in, in, in American sports broadcasting? And people threw out ideas like, you know, uh, Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. That was a big deal if, if you're baseball fans where he, he 715 past Babe Ruth. 
Another idea was Michael Jordan. His final shots over Byron Russell in game six of the NBA Finals in 1998. The Chicago Bulls, they won it. Or Jack Nicholas, his final major won at Augusta at age 46, winning the Masters. Those were all big things. But you know what unanimously won the debate that ended all of the debate? The year was 1980. If you know that year, see people shaking, they, they know what I'm about to head to. Miracle on Ice. Lake Placid, New York. And if you're familiar with the story, the USSR, or the Soviets, had dominated Olympic hockey for the past two decades. They had won the last four Olympic gold medals, and coming into the 1980 Games, they were the overall heavy favorites. The United States team was put together by a ragtag team of collegiate players, amateurs. How good were the Soviets, though? Well, let me give you a little background here. They had lost one game on Olympic ice since 1964. They were 27-1. They had just beaten twice the NHL All-Star team. These guys were pretty good. And just weeks before, in an exhibition match, they played the United States, I believe it was in Madison Square Garden, and they clobbered the U.S. 10-3. to You know anything about hockey? Ten goals is a lot of goals in a game of hockey. Well, by miraculous events, the U.S. made it to the semifinal match in the 1980 Olympics in Lake Placid, and something happened. The U.S. beat the untouchable Soviets 4-3. to And if, if, you, if you've seen it, or if you've seen the movie, Mir the Miracle on Ice, or Miracle, uh, that Disney put out, I think in 2005, you, can, you see the, the legendary TV announcer, Al Michaels, as the clock's ticking down, he, he's got this quote. He's, he says, do you believe in miracles? And it really kind of jump-started his career. But that's what gave the name of this, of this team in 1980, the Miracle on Ice, was Al Michaels' quote, Do you believe in miracles? More about this story, so stay tuned. But our text today is 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Yes, we're going to look at the whole chapter, so, so buckle up. We're going to try to work through this quickly. We got kind of three sections, or yeah, three points and five sections, subpoints to it. So the first, the first thing is the problem. The problem is that the church is carnal, as we see in verses 1 through 4. We have three kind of promptings by Paul, where he says the church is God's field, verses 5 through 9. The church is God's field. Then we have the church is God's building, in verses 10 through 15. The church is God's building. And then the church is God's temple, verses 16 and 17. The church is God's temple. And finally, we end with Paul's plea, the church as wisdom, verses 18 through 23. The church as wisdom. We're going to start out, we're going to kind of read through each section by section instead of the whole thing. I think it'll make more sense and kind of help us follow along a little better. So we're going to read through verses 1 through 4 to start. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people as, uh, as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fled you with milk, but not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not of the flesh and behaving only as a human way. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Notice first here that Paul addresses the church at Corinth as, as Christians. 
He calls them brothers. He calls them in Christ in the beginning and the end of verse chapter 1. The problem is, is what's happening in between here. As, as they are Christians, they are not being spiritual. They're being fleshly. They're spiritual babies. They're not growing. They have the Holy Spirit, but they are not growing. Why is that? Well, it's because they're relying on the flesh. It's a term used over and over in these first four verses. We see it a couple times here. They have fleshly desires and not godly desires that are leading them to these, these carnal ways. That's another terminology here. Is they, they are carnal Christians. Fleshly Christians saved by faith through God's grace, but sanctification is not taking place. They are essentially they are infants in Christ. I think it's really important for us to understand. Okay? They are believers in Jesus, but they're acting in fleshly ways. Okay, and Paul uses the, the, these, this analogy of, 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 of spiritual milk. And we, have, we have moms and dads in the room, a few kids, right? Some, and some of you get this. Some of you are going through this right now where your, your baby cannot eat solid food yet. The key word there is yet, right? That's going to change, hopefully. They will one day slowly start eating food. They'll start eating pureed food or soft foods that they can kind of, kind of gnaw on. And then one day, they'll actually start feeding themselves, believe it or not. Might not feel like it at times. But this is a great analogy that Paul puts here. The problem is that these people still need spiritual milk because they are not ready for solid food because they're fleshly ways that they are acting. And those fleshly desires, as we see here, they're leading to jealousy, and they're leading to strife. It's leading to arguments between the followers of Jesus here about if, who they follow. Is it, is it Paul or Apollos? We see these guys early on in chapter 1, and this is causing some massive division. It's what this chapter is really about. It's about division and Paul trying to fix this. But you notice who he does not say is causing them division? It's Christ. Christ is not falling uh, is not uh, causing them division. And this is the root of the issue that Paul is getting at here. Fleshly Christians are following other humans. Humans are essentially taking the place of where Jesus is supposed to be, and it's causing some massive issues within the church. So what we learn about this section is put Jesus first, but through that also pursue sanctification and grow in Christ to continue to grow as a church, to not allow leaders to cause disunity. But notice this, notice this. It's really not the leaders that are causing disunity. It's the people. It's the people that are causing unity. The leaders have led faithfully in this here. We can't blame Paul and Apollos. It's not their fault. It's the people within the church who have these fleshly desires that are acting carnal and fighting. These leaders have been led by the Holy Spirit and have faithfully served this church. And I realize that there are people within the room that are in different stages in their walks with Christ. And I want to encourage you, no matter where you are as you walk with Jesus, to continue to pursue Christian maturity, to continue to mature in Christ, to keep going and to keep growing. This is why we have things here like the Sunday gathering. Right, the church coming together, gathered together. That's why we have community groups throughout the week, four different places that you can go and attend, and you can meet people and grow together in community, but also grow spiritually. We really encourage smaller discipleship meetings, one-on-one, one-on-two throughout the week, 
for you to grow. And this is the church walking hand in hand together as we grow. And as we go, as we grow, be joyful. Be joyful in growing. Do not let this become a chore in your lives that, oh man, I have to show up on church. We get to go to church. Let that be a, let that be a good thing. Church, let that be a good thing. It's so important. It's so important for us. And if you are not a Christian here today, if you really do not have the Spirit of Christ living inside of you, then I want to encourage you to believe in Christ, to trust in Jesus, to believe that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he died a sufficient and sacrificial death, and that he paid the penalty of sin. Repent and believe. Trust in Jesus who covers us with full righteousness. So how do we avoid this this unity? Let's look through verses 5 through 9 here. Paul picks up, he says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So who is Apollos and who is Paul? Apollos and Paul are people who the Lord used to reach this church with the gospel message. They are servants of the Lord Jesus. Something we say here at Citizens Church is that the elders lead the church by serving. These men are doing just that. They are serving the church. And by serving Paul and Apollos, they are important. They are helpful. God did use them. God did use them. But their message that these Corinthians, that they believed, it was not, it was not their message. It was, it was God's message. The church is a field. A field of people who plant and water. But at the end of the day, it's God that brings the growth. It's God that brings salvation to people. It's God that brings sanctification to people. Paul goes as far to say in verse 7 that Apollos and myself, we are nothing. He's getting out of the way. He's saying we are nothing. It's all God's worth. We are just asked to be faithful to you. So they're saying don't praise us. Don't follow us. Praise God. Follow God. And you know what? Those guys doing the planting and the watering, they're going to receive a reward one day for their works here on earth. And those works cannot save them. Let that be clear. Those works cannot save them. But they will receive their reward someday, all that they did for the Lord. And it's coming. But in the meantime, let's focus on Christ. And Paul ends this section here with with the idea of building. Who is building what? That kind of leads us into verses 10 through 16. This is actually where we're probably going to spend the majority of our time because there's so much happening here. So we're going to pick up here in, in, in verse 10 where it says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is, Christ, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. The day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. 
If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, and he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. A foundation in something is incredibly important, especially when you look at buildings themselves. And Paul uses himself here as, as, as one of those examples, by God's grace. He, he is the one that, that God uses as the, as the foundation of the faith to build upon what the Corinthians have already seen and, and, and done. And his goal here is always to pass that off to someone else. Right? He desires, Paul desires to raise up leaders and pastors within that church. Indigenous people, indigenous people working the field and laying the building. I think there's so much we can learn by that, what Paul is doing here. And even when it comes to international missions, right? indigenous people leading the church. Paul is not in competition here with Apollos. Okay? He is not in competition. He desires others to lead. And Paul, essentially, he's working himself out of a job. That's what he's doing. He's working himself out of a job, and, and he comes to a place with the end in mind. He comes to a place with the end in mind and the exit. How do I get out of here? Not because he wants to, because he knows it's better for indigenous people to reach their own people. But to do that, he's got to put leaders in place. And we really see this working all throughout the book of Acts and Paul's ministry, going to places, engaging, engaging with people, engaging the city, raising up leaders, and then leaving, going on to the next place. Paul is laying the foundation. But what does he say the foundation is? Look at the end of verse 11. He said the foundation is Christ. Christ is the foundation that the Christian faith can be laid on. And it's the only foundation that the Christian faith can be laid on. If there is no Christ, there is no Christianity. It all falls apart. If something else is laid as the foundation... It's not Christianity. Jesus is the foundation. But some throughout history, church history, history in general, they have tried to add things to the foundation of Christianity. Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus morality is the foundation. Others have used ideas like church history or tradition as their add to, to Christ's foundation. Some injustice in the world. We're going to add that to, to the foundation of Christianity. But only the death, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus can be that foundation. Why? Because Jesus is God. He's the only thing that can take away sins. He's the only thing that can be, defeat our, our greatest problem in the world. And see this, that Paul is giving Jesus so much credit here. Paul, Paul is saying, Jesus, he is the hero of the story right here. Okay, get this. So Paul lays the foundation, but, but what is the foundation? the foundation? The foundation is Jesus. And I'm going to use a quick building analogy here. So engineers in the room, give, give me some grace here. Okay, give me some grace. I'm probably going to jack some stuff up here. But when you think about the idea of, of building something, okay, really you've got two main things. You've got workers and you've got material. You've got workers and you've got material. And you have building blocks for that foundation. So I want you to imagine, think of your house, think of your home or your apartment, wherever you live. Okay, if you look at the base of your home, you've typically got cinder blocks or you've got poured concrete. That kind of sets up your base for your home. And if you've got a basement, that goes all the way down to the floor. Okay, you've got those important things because that's the most important part of the building of your house or your home. Okay, if that is not strong, then it's all going to fall apart. It's, it, it's not going to be a good situation there. 
Okay, so when these people, when they build that, that, those homes or they build these places, they use these cinder blocks, these stones, because they are strong. And they withstand things like water and heat and, 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 and other different disasters that can potentially come, especially if you've got a basement, right? Okay, and so, so those things are incredibly important. But see this, that those workers that build on that building, they are not the foundation, Right? They just build it. They cannot be the foundation. If they try to be the foundation, they're going to be crushed. Okay, they're going to be crushed. And I think that's what Paul is kind of saying here is, is I am laying this foundation, but Jesus is the foundation. So focus on that. Paul is laying and he's building on the foundation of Christ. And then Paul goes in and he starts talking about materials of the building. Look here at verse 12. He uses materials common to those times that they used for building things. And this works out incredible. The Corinthian church that God is, 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 is working on and watching, he's asking them, how are you using your salvation? How are you using what God has done to save you that you cannot earn, but what are you doing with it? All right, so, so you look here in verse 12. He, he, we've got six different things that Paul mentions here. The first three, gold, silver, precious stones, they are solid. They are strong material. They withstand things. They're also very expensive. Wood, hay, and straw, they're easy to obtain. They're light, easy to work with. But they do not sustain. They wash out. They burn up. The gold, silver, and the precious stones, they last. And Paul wants the people to do their best because with God, they have all they need. With God, they have all they need with him and within them. They have all they need with, with God and within them. And I want us to understand what Paul is not saying. He's not saying this is works-based salvation, right? Get this out of our minds, right? We've already mentioned this. This is not works-based salvation. He describes this to all believers. He describes this to all the believers. If they, are, they, if they are a believer with the Holy Spirit, they will be saved. Verse 15. They have the Holy Spirit, they will be saved. But those who build with superior material, like gold, silver, and precious stones, they will receive their reward. It's coming. What's Paul saying when it comes to the reward that they will receive? Well, we don't know what they are, but we know that they're coming on the day of the Lord. And all those who have saving faith in Christ will be saved. But those who live their lives faithfully to the calling will receive a reward for their labor. And I'm not saying that this should motivate us to do more. This shouldn't motivate us to share the gospel more because, man, if I share the gospel with this person, God's going to reward me on that day. Or if I read my Bible more, God's going to re reward me on that day. If I serve the church more, God's going to re re reward me on that day. Paul, I think, desired them to love Jesus. And that love for Jesus to be an outpouring of their lives and full surrender to him. If you're familiar with the book Desiring God, John Piper, kind of the overall theme of the book that he kind of puts in there is that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied with him. And I think the main thing that we can take away from these few verses is, is the longevity of work here on earth as a follower of Jesus. We have to ask the questions, does it last? Does it last and what will make it last? I think two things, being centered on the gospel, getting that one right, being centered on a, 
on the full gospel and understanding the inerrancy of the Bible and what that means. If we are doing that and we are doing that well and we are preaching a full gospel and allowing the word of God to be completely true, completely sufficient for ministry, then I think our labors by God's grace, I think they will last. They will live into longevity. So you and I in the room, let's focus on Christ. Let's continue to share the gospel with the lost, continue to grow within the church and pour into others. Evangelism, discipleship is the church's mission. Let's continue to do that well. But how does God accomplish this? Let's look at verses 16 and 17. It says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. It's important for us to understand the you in this passage, or in, this, in these two verses here. That you is actually plural in the Greek language. So Paul is not talking about individuals here, but he's talking about the corporate church. The corporate church being filled with the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit. So not the building, but the people. All right, that's what it means. The building, not the building, but the people. How? Because of the community of believers within that, that, that temple or within that church. He's trying to get back to unity here. Okay, the Holy Spirit drives the church to unity in Christ. Ephesians 4, we are saved by one spirit. We are of one spirit. And so because of that, be holy. Because of that, be holy. Because you have the Holy Spirit, act holy. Rely on the Holy Spirit in times of rage or issues. Because there are going to be some outside the church that are going to kind of come in and try to divide the church. But there's also going to be some within the church that are going to be within trying to divide the church. And the Lord knows who they are. The Lord knows who they are. But what does the Holy Spirit give? What does the Holy Spirit give to the body of Christ? The Holy Spirit gives wisdom. Godly wisdom. We'll look at verses 18 through 23. So Paul kind of continues here. And he says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ and Christ is God's. Do not be impressed with human wisdom. Do not be impressed with human wisdom. If you want, li- if you want wisdom, look to God. If you want stupid, look to humans. God's wisdom is far, far greater. And I can't even be sufficient in how I can say how much far God's wisdom is than ours. It's not even close. You know, the book of Proverbs, I think one of the themes of the book of Proverbs is this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The wise person is to become a fool and to trust in the Lord's wisdom. And God's wisdom comes through the Holy Spirit's and through the word of God. The Holy Spirit illuminates. The Holy Spirit illuminates the words of the Lord for us to understand. And the person without the Holy Spirit, they cannot understand. 
They cannot understand and they can't submit to the word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I think uh, maybe Michael uh, preached on this. that says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. They cannot understand without the help of the Holy Spirit. It's wisdom. In this church here in Corinth, they are full of the Holy Spirit, but they are using human wisdom to try to fix their issues and their problems. Paul is telling them, go to God's wisdom here. Go to God's wisdom. Even the wisdom of Paul and Apollos and Cephas and the vision of the people, because, because of them. It's not because of those guys, it's because of, of, of the people there. And Paul says, don't boast in those leaders. Boast in the Lord. He is the only thing worthy of boasting in. These men, they came to serve you. They came to love you. And you are not theirs, but they are yours. And all these other things here we see in verse 22. But you know what? You are also Christ. Christ, you are also Christ. And Christ is God's. And Christ and God's in such a way that everything that Jesus did, what did he do? Everything that Jesus did, he did to glorify the Father. He did it for the Father. He was obedient to the Father. Paul's saying, live your life in such a way, Corinthians. Live your life in such a way that, that, that you have wisdom to glorify God with your lives. And this will bring unity to the church. This will bring unity to the church. We focus on Jesus, focus on the gospel, and focus on designing to glorify God with our lives. This is what brings unity, I think, what Paul is saying here. When we look at the church as living in such a way that, that glorifies God in every aspect of our lives. And our identity is found in Christ, so let's live for unity in the gospel, and let's live for eternity, knowing that there's a, lot, there's a lost and dying world out there. And when we look no different from the rest of the world, what does that say about our identity as Christians? And our identity as Christ, as we fight and we argue, we debate. I think there is a place for that. But we need wisdom from God. We need the Holy Spirit to do that well, where we don't operate out of the flesh. Let our focus be Christ. Let, it, let, let Christ unify us as a church. And let's live that out in such a way that shows that we are united, no matter our differences. That Jesus is enough for us. He is what unites us. And that's what Paul is pointing to. Focus on Jesus. Focus on the gospel. I will close with this, because I, I told you I would. I didn't tell you the rest of the story. I didn't finish it. Um, I told you the question. I told you the questions, the problem that was presented to us in this class, but I did not tell you the why behind it. Okay? I told you the Americans beat the Soviets, but that was only the semifinal game. So what happens next? There's two parts to this. Well, if you know the rest of the, port, uh, rest of the story, as, as Mr. Paul Harvey used to say, the U.S. plays Finland in the championship gold medal game. And they win. They win. Four to two. Second time ever the United States has ever won the gold medal in, the, in, in men's hockey. And it's not happened since. It's not happened since since 1980. So that's the end result. Would have been really terrible if they would have beat the Soviets and lost the championship. But it makes it one of the greatest stories because of it. That was the end result. But why did a classroom of 40 college students, 40, 50 college students, 20-year-olds 20 20 college students, why did they agree that the greatest 
uh, greatest thing in American sports history media broadcasting. Why did they say it was, was, was the 1980 Olympic team? Well, it was because of unity. It was because of unity and a team. This classroom of American college students united on our identity as Americans. And we had our differences in our fandom, right? We had our differences in our, in our fandom coming from, from different cities, melting pots all throughout the United States. But we were all Americans. And we were united to say that it was more important than Jordan's shot over Russell and the Chicago Bulls. It was more important than an individual golf player, the name of Jack Nicholas, a Columbus native. It was more important than Hank Aaron and the, the Braves. Those were individual guys representing individual teams, representing individual cities. This was about America and unity, and saying that win against the Soviets was more impactful than any individual athlete or any individual team. And I think that somewhat connects to this passage in the church when it comes to unity. I think it holds true in that it revolves not around an idea, but around a person. Around a person to Jesus Christ, fully man, fully God, and, and, and an event. And our, and our identity as a church and as followers of Christ and as Christians, we unite over this. We unite over it because we say that this is the greatest thing that has ever happened in the history of the world. That God became flesh and dwelt among us. God became flesh and dwelt among us and that the resurrection of Jesus and his payment of sins on the cross is enough to unite us. So let us, let us be a church united on the gospel and telling the world about the greatest event in all human history. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that you loved us enough to send Jesus. You loved us enough to desire us to be united on the gospel and united as a church to make an impact in this world and in the community, to engage the lost and to grow as Christians. God, help us to desire that. Help us, ch challenge us to desire to go deeper. Challenge us, challenge us not to be complacent in our faith. Challenge us to love our neighbors. Challenge us to be bold. Lord, be with this congregation. Continue to help them through the difficulties that they deal with throughout the week, whether it's health issues or stress issues or work issues or family issues. God, help them to feel comforted by you. Help us to continue to focus through the rest of this worship gathering and to see your glory. And through that, help us to glorify you in our lives. We love you. We pray us all in Christ's name. Amen.